You know Luke 24 and the road to Emmaus story. Let me be proud. How many of you know the Emmaus story? If you're near someone that doesn't know it or didn't raise their hand, grab a hold of someone who did raise their hand after the service. I'm not going to read it because it's long. So is the sermon. So maybe you'll take the card back when we're done today. There are many roads we travel in life. Some of us prefer straight, tree-lined roads. There should be a slide. There it is. We like those kinds of roads, especially in the spring and in the fall when the colors are just coming green and when the colors are going all over the place. Some of us would rather drive on mountain switchback roads. That's my kind of road to travel on. I love those. Similarly, there are roads that we avoid traveling on. Roads with lots of traffic, like around here. Roads with potholes, like around here. Then there are roads that are washed out, roads where travel is impossible, and we can't make it there. As there are preferred roads to travel... There are preferred life experiences. As there are roads we prefer to avoid, there are experiences in life we prefer to avoid. But the reality is that our preferences are not always what we get. Sometimes that's due to our own foolishness and choice we make. Sometimes it's due to the conditions of life over which we have absolutely no control. Pray with me as we consider this dilemma presented to these travelers to Emmaus on that Easter Sunday morning and to us on our life's travels. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I pray that you would open the eyes of our mind and our heart. Help us to see clearly what you have for us because of your Son, Jesus. May we be raised up to a new understanding, perhaps a fresh perspective, May the words that are spoken come from your heart. May they produce thoughts and, more importantly, actions that bring honor to you. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. The road to Emmaus that these two were walking, in one sense, was a preferred road because it was the road to home. But it was also a road they would rather not have been taking at all. Clearly, the road they had preferred had been washed out. Life had let them down. They knew that Jesus was at least a prophet of God. They knew and had observed that Jesus was powerful in both word and deed. And they had hoped that he was the one who was going to redeem Israel. The text tells us not only their words, but also their body language revealed what was going on. It says their faces were downcast. But not only had life let them down, they felt like God had left them down. Though they were heading home, they were heartbroken. They could have discussed what they experienced and how they were feeling for days and never arrived at a satisfactory conclusion. 
Then they met a stranger traveling the same road. They were so heartbroken that they accepted the gentle rebuke that this stranger made to them. How foolish you are. How slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. It wasn't that they hadn't read the prophets. They had read the prophets. They knew the prophets. They were undoubtedly related in some fashion or another to the prophets. But the key word was all. All that the prophets had spoken. They had read the scriptures selectively, concentrating on those parts that spoke of a triumphant Messiah who would be victorious. They would win with the Messiah. Those are the parts they really liked. And that's what they selected to read again and again. They needed a fresh understanding of the scriptures. And this stranger gave understanding to them. He opened the scriptures to them. I think, in part, what I'm about to share is what Jesus shared with them, though they didn't know it was him yet. Most likely, he started at Genesis 3.15, the first promise of a Savior-Redeemer. We read, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head. You will strike his heel. God's word to the serpent after he had beguiled Eve. And Adam, he was an easy mark. Eve just said, go try it. And he did. Guys, get it? Jesus reminded them of Genesis 22, which tells of Abraham placing his only beloved son on the altar. We read, Isaac spoke up and said to his father, Abraham, Father, yes, my son, Abraham replied, the fire and the wood are here, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abram answered, God himself will provide the lamb for the burnt offering, my son. And the two of them went on together. Jesus reminded them of Joseph, who preserved, was preserved to become the benefactor of his brothers who had tried to destroy him in Genesis 45. Then Joseph said to his brothers, come close to me. When they had done so, he said, I am your brother Joseph, the one you sold into Egypt. Now do not be distressed, do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because of it, because it was you, I'm going to start again. And now do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. But God sent me ahead of you to present you as a remnant on earth and to save the life by great deliverance. Jesus is unlocking the scriptures to them of difficult, challenging, almost impossible washout days. Surely he would have touched on the Passover in Exodus 12. These are the words God gave to Moses as he instructed him about it. On the 10th day of this month, each man is to take a lamb for his family. The animals you choose must be a year old male without defect. Slaughter them at twilight. Take some of the blood. Put it on the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. Undoubtedly, Jesus taught 
the meaning behind the sacrifices, the tabernacle ceremonies, the Day of Atonement. All of these he unwrapped for them to present to them as they were walking this seven-mile trip to Emmaus. And undoubtedly he reminded them of the prophecy of the suffering servant in Isaiah 53, where we read, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He helped them see the pierced one from the prophet Zechariah, where it was written, They will look on me, the one they have pierced, and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and grieve bitterly for him as one grieves for a firstborn son. And yes, he revealed to them the prophetic messages of Psalm 22 and Psalm 69, where in each psalm it says this, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Eloi, 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 lama sabachthani. See, Jesus did not teach them merely doctrine or prophecy. Listen to what it says in verse 27 of the text I didn't read this morning. He taught the things concerning himself. Luke 24, 27. The key to understanding the Bible that we have is to see that Jesus Christ is on every page preparing us for his arrival, instructing us in his time here, and inspiring us in the time today because of him. Here's the reality. Jesus was walking with these two on the way to Emmaus in the same way Jesus walks with us today. The question is not whether Jesus is walking with us, He is. He is always present with us. That's the promise of Scripture. The question is, are we walking with him? Are we walking with him? Or is it just incidental that he's walking with us? When the three arrived in Emmaus, Jesus made as though he was going to go on. Fortunately for them, They asked him to stay. While they were downcast, they were still hospitable. They had been won over by the word of God, that is, by Jesus the Christ, the Logos of John's gospel. They had also been won over by a fresh understanding of the word of God, that is, the scriptures, the scriptures that always point to Jesus. Yet they still didn't recognize this stranger. They were not yet walking with him. All they knew was that their hearts were burning and they wanted the burning to continue. Only in retrospect did they realize they had gone from heartbreak to heartburn. And they were changed not because they realized it was Jesus with them, but because the scriptures had been properly taught and applied to everything about Jesus and about them, including his death on the cross. The more we receive the scriptures, the more we will want to relate with the God of the scriptures, 
The hymn writer expressed it, I think, most profoundly. Beyond the sacred page, I seek thee, Lord. So a basic meal was quickly prepared. They were hungry. The bread was on the table. The moment for Jesus' disclosure had come. So how's he do it? He takes the bread. He gave thanks. He broke it. And he gave it to them. That's what it says in the text. They saw his hands. They saw his hands. They were different than when he had broken the bread at the feeding of the 5,000 on the north shore of Galilee. They were different than the hands that had broken the bread at the Last Supper in the upper room. They saw the nail-pierced hands of Jesus. The marks indelibly left on him, later to be shown to Thomas, they saw now. And in an instant, they knew who it was. I can imagine those two sitting there in amazement, embracing in great joy, overcome. Nothing had changed, but everything had changed. Jesus had been walking with them, and now they were eating with him in their home. The crucified and dead Jesus wasn't missing. It wasn't just an empty tomb and people wondering who took him and where. He was alive. And they had walked with him for miles and not known it. They had Bible knowledge. But they had just been fed with the knowledge of God's love for them in the midst of disappointment and discouragement, and their eyes had become opened. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 8.1, We know that we all possess knowledge, but knowledge puffs up while love builds up. And their world came together again. The fact that Jesus vanished did not mean that he abandoned them, for he was with them even though they could not see him. But now the missing part was no longer missing. They were walking with Jesus. And with new energy and fresh hope, they ran the seven miles back to Jerusalem to tell the others. It's the ending of the text I did not read. They ran the seven miles. I tried the fun run last week. I made a half a lap (laughs) and walked very briskly after that. Seven miles, they were filled with so much delightful energy. Three things happen when we're overcome by disappointment and discouragement. And these are the applications for today. Thinking or feeling that God has let us down can cause us to walk away from the fellowship of believers. It's true they were returning home, but it's also true they were moving away from the other believers in Jerusalem, the others who had had the same hopes. When Christians allow themselves to become preoccupied with their dashed hopes and frustrated plans, they often withdraw from the strength that others will provide. They isolate. I don't want to talk about it. I don't want to deal with it. Jesus will come in the fellowship and the company of believers. Where two or three, I am in the midst, he said. 
But note from the lesson that the end result is that they hurry back to Jerusalem and the others. When they're happy, when they have hope, and they have the risen Christ among them, they're eager to run. But when it seems like he's far away, when their hopes appear to be dashed, they isolated themselves. My friends, we cannot do this. To walk with Jesus means that we also walk with each other in the church, even and perhaps especially with those who think differently than we do or maybe downcast themselves or we are downcast. We need each other. That's how God's plan works out in his church. Second, thinking or feeling that God has let us down can cause us to live in the past. They summed up their condition very neatly when it's said in verse 21, but we had hoped that it was he who was going to redeem Israel. Notice the past tense. We had hoped, which strongly lets us know the hope was gone. The saddest death of all has to be the death of hope. Jesus walked with them to help them understand the present. The Messiah had to die. The sacrifice of the Lamb of God must be made in order for people to become the children of God, really redeemed. Nothing good has ever come from living in the past. It's called the good old days, and that's only half right. Old days is correct. We just remember and hang on to the good. There was junk, too. Trouble, too. Problems, too. They were old days. Jesus walked with them to help them understand the present, the now, the sacrifice, and the forgiveness that comes by the cross. Third, thinking or feeling that God has let us down can cause us to question God's care. When Jesus says to them they are slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken, it indicates that disciples were selective when it came to the scriptures. They believed part of the word of God, but not all of it. Their knowledge and understanding of the scriptures is selective, and so is ours. When Jesus said he would never leave us or forsake us, that applies even in the middle of a heartbreak. When Jesus says that he will supply all our needs according to his riches and glory, that's true in tough times too. And especially when he says that all things are working for the good of those who love him, even our heartbreaks and tough times can be redeemed and turned into something useful. Faith requires trust. It requires trusting that there is more than you can see with your eyes. One night a house caught fire. A young boy who was in an upstairs bedroom jumped out his window onto the roof of the house. It was a high roof. The father stood on the ground below with outstretched arm calling to his son, Jump, I'll catch you! He knew the boy had to jump to save his life, for the house was in flames throughout. All the boy could see, however, was flame and smoke. As can be imagined, he was afraid to jump from the roof. His father kept yelling, Jump! I will catch you! The boy finally yelled back, Daddy, I can't see you! 
The father replied, but I can see you, and that's all that really matters. That's how it is with God. He sees what we don't see. He knows what we don't know, and he can be counted on to catch us. He always has. He always will. John Wesley described his conversion to Jesus Christ by saying, My heart was strangely warmed. Many years later, he was asked the key to his ministry. He said, and I quote him, I asked God to set me on fire and let people watch me burn. End of quote. His whole life was a heartburn. A heart burning for Jesus, a passion to live for him, a passion to seek the lost, a passion to help the hurting, is the story of John Wesley's life. His heart caught fire, and the rest of him followed and burned for God. May that be our witness. May that be the witness of Bethany Covenant Church as a community and each of us as individuals within it, that God would set us on fire, that we would let people see us burn with passion for what God is about and his son Jesus Christ in our life, that we would passionately seek the lost and help the hurting, that we would clearly, boldly, lovingly walk with Jesus. That's what the risen Christ seeks from us. May it be so, or as it used to be said, amen and amen. Let us pray. Father, set us on fire. Help us to recognize you, whatever it takes to recognize you walking with us, so that we might be aware and also might choose to walk with you. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen.